Well, we are continuing our studies in Route 66, looking at the 66 books of the Bible in a calendar year. And today has us in the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. Probably haven't heard a lot of sermons on the Song of Solomon. I have not preached a lot of sermons on the Song of Solomon, okay? So we're in for an adventure together. It's going to be good. Uh, here's the little overview of the bookshelf. Uh, the top shelf there, uh, the little orange books, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the books of the law, the Torah, uh, kind of lay the, the framework of it all, creation, uh, humanity's fall into sin, and how God inaugurated a, a plan of redemption. Adam and Eve were hiding from God, and he sought them out, right? And he extended a promise to them that uh, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And then God raised up Abraham, chose to prosper Abraham, and promised that he would, through Abraham, bless all the nations of the earth. And so we trace the, the line of, of Abraham, uh, the line of Israel. That's the blue books of history there on the top of the of, uh, middle section. And that's really the, the, that gives us the, whole, the, the nuts and bolts uh, that, that really sets the stage for the coming of Jesus. But then there's all these other books in the Old Testament too. Uh, and the little purple stack are the writings. And if, if the books of history give us the nuts and bolts and, and, and the details and the timeline and the chronology, the, the writings give us the color they bring the emotions, and we have everything there. We have the, the, the struggles of Job. We have the, the emotions of the people in worship in the Psalms. We have the wisdom of Proverbs. We have Ecclesiastes that addresses the meaning of life, and certainly the Song of Solomon that addresses love, particularly love within the context of the marriage union. Uh, so the Song of Solomon lauds the beauty and passion and pleasure of the marriage relationship. Also, the struggles of the marriage relationship are captured here. There's a range of emotions uh, that are described in the relationship of this man and this woman in the Song of Solomon. And Solomon does not just talk about some type of cold and calculated love, but through a series of analogies and word pictures, he describes the strong passions of romantic love. I find it somehow appropriate that we are here in the Song of Solomon today. Sherry and I celebrate our 26th anniversary this week. And so, Song of Solomon has been on my mind, right? Thanking God, uh, I, I, I am blessed. Many of you remind me often of how blessed I am uh, with my wife. Uh, God has been so good to, to me and thankful that God has given us the opportunity to explore the love and fulfillment that is found in a marriage relationship. Uh, it's not always easy. I can't paint you a glorious picture that has no, no struggles in it, uh, but there's a richness in that marriage relationship that is unique. And um, again, we, we, we praise God for his goodness to us. Uh, several different perspectives on how to read the Song of Solomon, and I think this is one of the first issues we have to think about a little bit, is uh, reading it right. How do we uh, process through it? Uh, some have uh, described it as an allegory. Um, 
it is not actually describing a married couple and the passions and desires of the sexual relationship. It's simply describing Christ's love for his church, his bride. And so all the details just reflect spiritual realities. It's not really describing what we think it seems to be describing. Okay? And this is actually a popular view in the early church because they weren't quite sure what to do with this book. And and all the emotions and imageries, and it seemed pretty raw. And so, I, but I think it was a misguided approach to just chalk it up to allegory, to just say, oh, this is just, this is just describing spiritual realities, okay? Another approach would be to just simply view it as a book of history, um, a series of love poems depicting the actual love of a man and a woman in marriage, um, I think we can say a little bit more than that, though, and I, w- I would suggest that it's a, it's a type. Um, what I mean by that is that it does describe the beauty and pleasure of marital love between two actual people in history. We have real names, we have real dates, uh, but it points beyond simply a man and a woman to the greatest love story of all. Uh, All of Scripture is pointing us to Christ. And Song of Solomon is no exception to that. So when it describes marital love, uh, we know that that at the heart of that image is God's love for the world. So it's both. Okay, It's, it's, It's real events. It's really describing a romantic relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. But it is also pointing us to the greatest love story of all. Uh, Marriage is meant to be a symbol, pointing us to the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, There's that great little passage there in Ephesians 5 where Paul's giving instructions to the husband and wife. And then he he ends up saying there at the end of that chapter, I'm really not talking about husband and wife at all. (laughs) I'm actually talking about the relationship of Christ and the church. But the principles can be applied to husbands and wives. (laughs) I mean, like he wants to say that really marriage at its heart, the, the most beautiful picture of marriage is Christ's love for the church. And we could... We could really describe all of redemption, all of God's great plan of salvation through the lens of marriage. Um, Just a couple glimpses of that. Jesus is preparing a place and then he will return for his bride, right? This is familiar passage, John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going away, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you and then I will return and take you unto myself. Uh, that where I am there, you may be all, always, right? Um, that's marriage language. Jesus is speaking as a groom would speak, who is going away to, to get things prepared and maybe put on an addition to the house, and then he's going to come back and claim his bride, all right? That's it's marriage language. Um, I don't think I have the slide for it here, but letter C, if you're, if you're tracking on the outline, the great coming celebration for God's people is a marriage supper, So what is the great feast, the great celebration at the end of the age? It's a marriage feast, right? So the the, the groom, Christ, has returned for his bride, the church, and now there's a great celebration as the marriage is consummated. So this is like like the picture of what God is doing uh, in scaling mountains and crossing oceans to pursue uh, the one that he loves. That's us. That's his church. So uh, I think that, that type uh, genre is, is helpful for us. It is historical event, but it points beyond the history to deeper realities. 
All right, the Bible uses several different words for love. There is agape love. That's probably the one we're most familiar with. This is a covenant type of love. Uh, It's the type of love that can be commanded. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, Paul issues it as an imperative command. I don't care how you feel. (laughs) Love them as Christ loved the church. Sacrifice for them. So this is the nature of agape love. Um, there's also phileo love. That's a brotherly love. Uh, it speaks of camaraderie and friendship. I hope you have some people that, that, um, that you relate to in that way. Uh, there's storge love, which is like a parental nurturing kind of love. But the Song of Solomon explores yet a different kind of love in the New Testament described as eros love. Romantic love, passionate love, a love marked by strong desire. We get our word erotic, right, from this word eros, strong desire. And the church, of course, has not always addressed human sexuality well. We've sometimes focused on sexual sin and perversion without really telling the whole story, without describing the goodness and the beauty of God's design for sexuality. And sometimes in our attempts to be appropriately discreet, we have been silent. This isn't something that we just talk about flippantly, right? There's a sacredness to this topic of the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And so we don't just uh, talk about it in the foyer, right? But sometimes we just don't talk about it. And that is, is not a good thing either. So Song of Solomon provides a good corrective for us. It puts it on the table and says, hey, this is a good topic worthy of our discussion and consideration. I was thinking, too, uh, doing a little reading this week, Augustine, in the 4th and 5th century, he wasn't sure what to do with this either, okay? The early church, again, um, struggled with this. Augustine, Augustine settled on three reasons for marriage. Procreation. So, right, having children. Protection, like sex within marriage is better than illicit sex outside of marriage, which is so destructive. Uh, And sacrament. Augustine said, in some sense, marriage, the intensity of the marriage relationship points to the gospel. It points to Christ's love for his church. So, notably absent, though, on Augustine's list was pleasure or companionship or joy. It was just very, a very stoic view of marriage. God could have made procreation happen in just a very functional way, but he didn't. Uh, he chose to design that relationship in a way that uh, was pleasurable and, and emotional and something that created and forged a, an incredible bond Uh, And so there's this element that God has woven into the marriage relationship that uh, is charged and emotional and strong, right? The Anglican, it was actually the Puritans who came along later, by the way, and had to add to Augustine's list. And they identified companionship. You know, they identified that positive element of the marriage relationship. It's not good for a man to be alone. It's not good for anybody to be alone, right? To be isolated. And so God made provision for that in a unique way in 
the marriage relationship. So a little after the Puritans, the Anglican prayer book was, was drafted, and um, they really reflect this well. This is actually a prayer that would be prayed over a couple as they're getting married, and I just think it really reflects well the, the beauty and the goodness of the marriage relationship. Uh, give them, the married couple, wisdom and devotion in the ordering of their common life, that each may be to the other a strength in need, a counselor in perplexity, a comfort in sorrow, and a companion in joy. Grant that their wills may be so knit together in your will and their spirits in your spirit that they may grow in love and peace with you and with one another all the days of their life. Give them such fulfillment of their mutual affection that they may reach out in love and concern for others. Isn't that great? Like cause there to be such an overflow of love that they will, that that'll spill over into the lives of, of, of other people. C.S. Lewis also sort of addressed this topic of pleasure and, and wanted to recover a good view of, of pleasure. Um, he wrote about it, in, this little quote, in the Screwtape Letters. And the context for the Screwtape Letters, it's a, it's a fictitious conversation between two demons. An older demon who's coaching a younger demon on how to tempt people, Okay. So this is the context of the quote. The demons are talking together. And the one says to the other, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on God's ground. God made the pleasure. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which God has forbidden. We can only twist the good things that God has given and, and cause them to misuse those good gifts, right? So the, the point in all of this is that uh, this is God's territory, and it is good, right? And we need to, we need to say that more often than we do. We, we live in a culture... Uh, that has uh, a sexualized culture that has cast off all restraint. Marriage is actually thought to limit sexual expression. It is often seen to be the enemy of romance. But the Song of Solomon presents a very different picture of joy and fulfillment and romance in the marriage relationship. God designed sex and he knows how it works best. So we as parents uh, should guard our children from distorted ideas about sexuality, but we should celebrate God's good designs for human sexuality, right? I had one parent after the first service, their child had come up to them and said, no more talk about this, Dad. And, uh, and he said, but it was good. He said, well, this is something that we need to talk about, and, and God's Word speaks to this, and so... Uh, I think, again, Song of Solomon provides a good corrective for us. All right, so some main characters here. There we go, the king. Uh, the king here is identified as Solomon, right there in, in the first verse of the book. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves right off the bat, why would we take marriage advice from Solomon? Right, here's a guy that had many wives and concubines, 
Well, first of all, in God's wisdom, he caused Solomon to write the book. And he gave Solomon wisdom, okay? So at the end of the day, that's going to be enough. But I think we should also recognize that, um, that many of Solomon's marriages were political alliances. And that's very different than what we encounter here in the Song of Solomon, okay? Uh, and we also know that Solomon got into a lot of trouble later in life where his many wives led him away from the Lord to the worship of, of foreign gods and goddesses. And so we're, we're depicting a time here in Solomon's life that was earlier on. And so I think those things at least provide some context for us. But uh, the king. And then there is the Shulamite, uh, the, the woman, the young woman here in the narrative. Shulam was a small village in Galilee up in the north of the country. Uh, she is actually likened to Tirzah, which was a beautiful city, the, the largest city in the north of Israel at this time. At a later time, Samaria would become the capital of the north, but at this time, it was Tirzah. And so, like, she was the crown, this woman was the crown jewel of northern Israel. She was Miss Northern Israel, right? Um, so the, the king and the woman, she, she, she was not wealthy. Rather, in fact, she is presented as being of the peasant class. There seems to be maybe a, a, a little inequality in their status, but that too is part of the, the love story here. Uh, she actually, there's a whole section here where she's really conscious, self-conscious about her darkened skin. And I want to just comment on this. I think it's helpful to think about uh, this is not a racial issue. She was not being looked down on because of her ethnicity. It's, it was a social statement. She goes on to say that her brothers made her, probably her stepbrothers, right? That's more the narrative. Her brothers made her work out in the fields. And she says she's been out in the hot sun. She's been working out in the sun. She's been taking care of the vineyards, and she hasn't had time to take care of her own vineyard. There's her description of herself. Right? So she's this working class young woman from a rural area, and she is in this relationship now with the king of Israel. Uh, and then also here there's friends. There's some others that sort of speak up. And most of the English translations will say he or she, like, so you can orient who's talking here. But then along the way, too, there's little spots where others sort of like the chorus, the villagers, you know, they speak up and they, they maybe help us interpret and understand what's going on in the dialogue. So that's kind of the, the flow. Uh, those are the main uh, characters in the song. And they sort of provide some commentary along the way. It is really difficult to be dogmatic about the structure of the book. There are no clear markers like we have in Psalms and Proverbs. The chapter divisions were inserted at a later time, and they're often uh, unhelpful. And they sometimes actually seem to divide the book awkwardly and maybe break the flow of thought. So uh, they're helpful for us because I can tell you to go to a specific verse and you can find it and follow along, but... Um, they don't really help us in terms of really thinking about the structure of the book. Uh, the various poems do not appear to be in a strict chronological order. But I am going to suggest, that being said, I am going to suggest a, a possible flow of thought that I think captures the essence of it. 
and at least might give you some handles uh, to, to think this through. Uh, the first section, the opening chapters, uh, are what I call falling in love. A lot of statements about longing and desire. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. All right. Not a lot of question about what's being communicated here, right? There's this intense longing and desire to be together, right? To express their love. Chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, again, the woman. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. Get me something to eat, I am weak in the knees, right? I mean, just a really strong statement about the desires of love. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 8, again, the woman. Um, I'm sorry, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. My beloved spoke and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. It's, It's springtime, the winter has passed, it's the time for love. Right, so again, just, just a lot of verses here about desire. Uh, the second section, I think, focuses more on what I call being united in love. Here is this, um, things are kind of coming together a little bit. Matter of fact, I think in chapter 3, we have Solomon. Uh, remember the imagery of, of the groom going away to prepare a place and then returning to claim his bride? I think we see Solomon now coming to claim his bride. So at chapter 3, verse 6, she says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle. So here comes this great regal procession, right? And they can see it from away, and they can hear the music playing, and everybody's dressed in their, their, their dress blue uniforms, right? And swords on their sides. And I mean, it's this, 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 this ceremony now. It, it, it's, it's happening uh, the time has come. The bride's beauty is praised in chapter 4. Um, Solomon describes her from head to toe, and it becomes pretty evident that she doesn't have any clothes on. Right? I mean, this is, this is hard to picture. This is anything other than their wedding night here. Chapter 4, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. By the way, guys, I would not recommend using these particular descriptions. 
They might not fit in our context. You might want to liken her teeth to a string of pearls, right, or something that... Uh, but in this context, to say that your, your teeth are like sheep that have just been shaved and washed and they're nice and white and that was, that was good stuff here in the ancient world, right? Uh, very uh, attainable images uh, that he used to describe the one that he, that he loved. I think some of these verses as we move through here speak of the consummation of their marriage. Chapter 5, verse 1. Again, Solomon presents this. Um, I mean, anybody could pick this up, and, and, and a lot of the references are not overt, but he uses this rich imagery, right? Uh, so here it is, chapter 5, verse 1. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. Okay, she's already talked about she is a vineyard. She, she, she's used that garden imagery, and he says, now I've come into the vineyard. Right? So really strong statements, but again, put in poetic form, I think describing the consummation, the coming together, the union of this marriage. Uh, and then there's a section here on what I've called struggling in love. And it's one of the more interesting sections. I'd like to, I'd like, I'd like to do a little more reading on this even, but... Uh, there's a scene here where he comes knocking at her door late in the evening. And she's already in bed. She's gotten undressed. She's gotten washed up. And she's like, oh, do I get all dressed again? Am I going to get my feet dirty? I'm, gonna, I'm all set for bed here. Well, anyway, she, she, she comes to the door. By the time she gets to the door, he's gone. And now there's a whole different series of emotions. Like she's maybe second-guessing, maybe I should have hurried more, maybe I, here I was a little frustrated, and now, all of a, now there's some insecurities maybe that are playing out in her mind and her heart, and she goes off in search of him to make sure everything's okay. I just find it so interesting. Like it's not just like this bliss and euphoria and everything's perfect and everything goes naturally, and like there's this... There's also some other emotions going on too in, in the, the context of marital love. Right? There's struggle there. Uh, I think it's really depicted in a, in a powerful way. She praises uh, him as well and his body. Chapter 5, verse 14, his arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. So Solomon had pipes. Come on, are you reading the text here? His arms are rods of gold, right? So they're, they're kind of back and forth in this whole section here. And then a final section of just growing in love, kind of a mature love in the, the final verses. There is a conclusion that I, I actually want, I do want to close with that. But I want to just pause and think through a couple of themes. It's, it's really hard with Song of Solomon, again, without, without a tight chronological or even thematic ordering. So we can't cover it all comprehensively, but I want to touch on just a few areas that I think give us a sense uh, for some of the takeaways that we should have from these, uh, from this book. Here's one of them. Love requires attention. Several times uh, they, they call to each other, come away with me. Come away with me, my love. Um, there's this need for retreat. There, uh, 
we're, we're due to get away. You know, they talk even about like, a, like it's, spring has come. There's some seasonal things. Like it's, it's time. We, 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 we need to, to be recharged and refreshed. It's time to reconnect. We need some unhurried time, a time that's free of distractions. Um, there's a tendency for marriages to become oriented around children, right? Or there's, there's other things that sort of sometimes uh, get in the way and distract us. And so there's this, I, I love the way that they are intentional with saying we need to, we need to spend some time together. Um, marriage doesn't just happen, right? It doesn't just, it takes work. And uh, we, we have to keep leaning in and we have to do regular maintenance and we have to take time away to, to build our relationship. There's another place where they actually uh, talk about the fact that we have, to, we have to get rid of the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. That's one of the, the images that they use. And I love that idea, I mean, the, the idea of the little foxes. Like it's not necessarily these huge things, but it's a lot of little things that if we're not careful can do great damage in a marriage relationship. So love requires attention. To me, that's an interesting theme as you kind of work through there. Uh, love is dangerous. Three times we have a very similar expression. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires, until it's time. And so that, that phrase is, is, is used over and over again. There's, there's some kind of danger present in the context of these very strong emotions. Uh, we have to be careful, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a point where Solomon likens his desire to the speed and rush of his chariots pulled by his horses. Okay, I mean, this is... He doesn't pull any punches on the depth of the desires, right, in this realm. And so there's these warnings, I think appropriately so. Not warnings against sex, as if sex is a bad thing, but in the context of great desire, there's also danger. And so, to me, another interesting theme that surfaces here. Words are important. I read to you his description of her. And her description of him, right? Um, but there's just a lot of words, a lot of praise, a lot of encouragement. This is, to be honest, was one of the big takeaways, convicting aspects for me. I, we should be free with praise. We should be quick to say, I, I so appreciate this about you, okay? Um, in the context of a, of a marriage relationship, words are important. And I think what we see here, part of the health of this relationship is their speech patterns towards one another. I mean, there are times when we, when we get frustrated, right, within the context of marriage, and there's, uh, there's, there's tension there, but there should be, in, in the midst of those times of conflict, there ought to be so many opportunities for praise and encouragement uh, that ought to mark uh, the marriage relationship. So just a few of, again, we could look at many themes here, but just to kind of help you think through some of the dynamics at play. So conclusion, chapter 8. This last section is, um, I think, kind of brings things together a little bit. We see here that love is powerful. Uh, 
chapter 8, verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's, it's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. So what, what a strong series of statements here about the power of love, right? This idea of a seal. She says, I want uh, the king to put his seal, right? Uh, a signet ring or something that the king would have that would mark it as, as his. It would belong to him. It signals permanence and, and, and ownership and connection and covenant uh, it's actually an imagery that's used to describe the Holy Spirit's role, right? In our lives, the Spirit is, a, is a, an internal mark of God's ownership on us. It's a wonderful imagery, and she wants the security of that relationship. Love is as strong as death, right? It is unrelenting. Um, if someone were to offer you money for that love, you, you, you'd laugh them off. It's a, it can't be bought, right? This is the, the nature of love. It is powerful. Love is preserved. A really fascinating section. We get the, the chorus, the villagers chime in here in chapter 8, verse 8. We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of, of cedar. Uh, so here's this young girl, and she's, she's not ready for marriage yet. She's still just growing up. Uh, but, but how should we counsel her, right? And then these curious imageries. If she's a wall, we'll build these towers on her. If she's a door, well, a wall is, is a description of a chaste woman. A door is a description of a promiscuous woman. So if she's chaste, if she's a wall, we'll build towers upon her. We'll celebrate her. If she's a door, we'll lock her up. We'll build panels of cedar around her, <laughs> right, to protect her, maybe from herself. Uh, but notice then the woman, the Shulamite, speaks into this. It's almost like she's discipling the younger women in the congregation, she says in verse 10, I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. She's physically, sexually mature, right? Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. So she says, I've found fulfillment in my marriage relationship. I am a wall. I preserve myself for my husband. Uh, so yeah, just a great statement there, again, about the preservation of uh, of the, the marriage relationship. Um, so love is powerful, love is preserved, love is precious. Another imagery here in verses 11 and 12. Solomon had a vineyard in Balhermon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. And two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. Uh, what a great statement here. She says Solomon has these immense vineyards, right, that he, he rents out and people have to pay all these, this money. And she views her, her life and her sexuality as, as something of great value. 
and she, she's gifting this to Solomon. Um, so again, it, 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 this, this, viewing it as a precious commodity. And then a final interaction between the two of them in verses 13 and 14. Uh, you, he says, you who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. And she says, come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Um, all this imagery of, of gardens and freedom and mountaintops and they're communicating here. Again, marriage is not the end of romantic fulfillment. It is the best context for romantic fulfillment. And it kind of ends on that high note. Well, our gospel glimpse, each time, uh, each book of the Bible we look to and see how it points us ahead to Christ, uh, the beauty and intimacy of marriage points us to the greatest love story of all between Jesus and his church. I was uh, going through our, our, our uh, I've got a little prayer sheet that I use uh, when I'm praying for our congregation, and I just kind of glancing through that again, uh, struck me that nearly a third of our adult congregation are single, right? So whether they've never been married, whether uh, they've been married and divorced, whether they're a widow or a widower, that's a big chunk of our group. What in the world does a sermon on marriage have to do with all the single people in the congregation, right? Well, I think this is at least in part the connection point for us. Uh, marriage should concern us all, because we are all, uh, if we're in Christ, we have been betrothed to Christ. And there's coming a day when marriage as we know it will be no more. Because it will be overshadowed with a much greater, deeper union that we will have with Christ. So, so marriage is something that has pertinence for all of us, whether we're single or married. We certainly don't want to communicate that a person is somehow incomplete if they're not married. Jesus and Paul might have something to say about that, right? Marriage should not be denigrated and it should not be worshipped. But it ought to be something that we're all interested in. in understanding the nature of our relationship with God through Christ. And if you don't know Christ, uh, God has extended his love to us through Christ. You are loved it's the greatest love story of all. God has scaled mountains and crossed oceans and crossed the barriers of our sin to draw us to himself. Uh, the story is played out again and again from the Garden of Eden and the wake of sin up to the present day. God is wooing us. He is calling us into a a relationship that is characterized by a strong, passionate, unrelenting covenant love. And it would be our prayer that you would respond to his wooing even today and experience the fullness of his love.